I didn't hear all the announcements. I was in the back doing something. As usual, I wasn't paying attention. And um, I apologize for that, except I, the only part I heard was something to the effect in a loose translation of let Larry go as long as he wants. Now, that may be a very loose translation, but um, uh, it's always difficult to compete with uh, the stomach, you know, when there's food. And sometimes this is a little different because you have that little separated building back there. Boy, when it's in the same building and you can smell it cooking, it really gets tough to concentrate. So um, I promise to stop just as soon as I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be with you again. It's been a real treat. I enjoy you folks, and it's always interesting when you come to conferences like this to not only see folks that you know from other places like Yosemite and from here, but from other parts of the country, visitors and folks that you know in other contexts. So it's really good. It's been a treat to be with my brother, uh, Mr. Roy Hill, and to enjoy his ministry. Really been a blessing to me and some things that I have learned there. I really appreciate the invitation and opportunity to be with you. And I would just mention again briefly that on Monday and Wednesday, I'll be uh, going to two different facilities, correctional facilities, to uh, share with those men my testimony and maybe some women as well. So uh, the Lord has opened those doors. There was some opposition initially that the Lord overcame to enable me to be able to get in those places. So appreciate, if you would, in the midst of everything else, to uh, ask the Lord to bless that time there as well. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of 2 Kings in chapter 5. This may be a familiar story to some of you, and maybe not to all of you. It's the story of the healing of Naaman a man who had leprosy. Second Kings, chapter 5. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but... He was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now, when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, 
that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My my father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he, that is Elisha, said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. Now if you're just joining us this morning, then you're coming in on the end of a series of messages that have looked at the life and ministry of Elisha up to this point. And we who have been here have been noticing the fact that the ministry of Elisha began with an opened heaven, and a man received up in heaven, that is Elijah, and something coming down from heaven that he took up that linked the man on earth with the man in the glory, who then went forth to minister and to serve the Lord and to witness for the Lord to a nation that was under judgment. Although that judgment was not yet effected, it had not yet happened, but it would happen, there was an interval of grace a period of long suffering, if you will, of God 
in which the ministry of Elisha took place. And we looked at chapters 3 and 4 and saw that series of miracles that took place, some of them seemingly in rather unusual fashion, at least they seem to go against logic, if you will, almost, when we think about what these folks were told to do, but how they were pointed to these resources, supernatural resources that could deliver them out of a situation that either was a disaster or a near disaster. Now one of the things that all of those had in common is that they all occurred within the borders of the nation of Israel. And we remember again that Elisha and Elijah before him ministered not in the southern kingdom of Judah, but in the northern kingdom known at that time as Israel. But even then these things took place within the confines of the nation of Israel. But now it seems that once those things had occurred there, it would seem only natural in one sense, wouldn't it, that the blessing that had been experienced in those places would expand beyond their own borders. And so now it begins to reach beyond the borders of Israel, even to the land of Syria. Which is an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? Israel as a nation, as a whole, often lost sight of the fact that God never chose them as a nation that the blessing of God might be bottled up in them exclusively. They were a vehicle. Even under the law of Moses, even when they were given the prescriptions and the regulations for what would take place when they came into the land, God always had a mind out for those He called the strangers who were not of the covenant of promise and not of the land of Israel. And finally, in the book of Kings, when Solomon dedicated the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, the temple of that day, it's interesting to read his prayer again. And how in that prayer he said, Lord, if the stranger, that is if one who is outside of the commonwealth of Israel, hears of your name and of your great grace that is demonstrated in this house, let them hear and come. Let this house be a drawing place for those that are outside of the commonwealth of Israel. As I say, Israel as a whole tended to lose sight of that fact down through the years. It's interesting, though, that how they lost sight of it, if you can keep your place there in 2 Kings for a moment, turn with me, if you would, to Luke's Gospel in chapter 4, and just consider for a moment the Lord's use of of the very things we are reading about, to drive his point home to the people of Israel in his day. In the orderly presentation of Luke's Gospel, the Lord Jesus returns to Galilee after his testing in the wilderness. And he returns to Galilee, and in verse 16, he comes to Nazareth. This is, as you might, you might say, his first speaking engagement, if you will. First time he speaks back in his hometown, synagogue. 
And he comes to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. They knew who he was. And you know perhaps the story how he, it's an amazing story really when you think about it. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. There was delivered unto him what says here in our English translation, the book of the prophet Isaiah or Isaiah. Now remember that in that day it wasn't a book with pages and leaves like we have. It would have been a scroll. When they discovered the scroll of Isaiah at Qumran, what are called the Dead Sea Scrolls, the scroll of Isaiah is somewhere around 28 feet long. And as their custom was, the scroll, as you know, was rolled both this way and that. Of course, in the Hebrew, they would have read from right to left. When the reading was finished at the synagogue reading for whatever time that would have been, they took that scroll and they put it back into what is called today, and I suppose what it was then, the ark. And they placed it back there. So it wasn't like you could open the scroll and say, because they didn't have chapter and verse, say, turn to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Imagine that the scroll had been placed there from its prior reading. And as the Lord opens the scroll to read, it had been delivered to him, the book of I, the prophet Isaiah. And he opened the book and he found the place. Wasn't a coincidence, was it? That he began to read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it again to the minister, sat down, and all the eyes of them in the synagogue, they were fastened on him. I think they were fastened on him because he didn't finish reading the sentence. And those that knew the Scripture knew that there was another part, wasn't there? About the day of the vengeance of our God. And he didn't read it there. And that's been a comma, a parenthesis, an intercalation, if you will, that's taken almost 2,000 years or more from the space of where he stopped until whenever the rest of that is fulfilled. And he said to them, this day, you're looking at the fulfillment of the Scripture. And as much saying, I am the one who's standing here before you fulfilling what Isaiah prophesied of. And all bear witness and wondered at his gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said unto them, You'll surely say unto me this proverb, Position, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard and done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. Now watch what happens, because those who spoke the same language as him clearly understood the implications of what the Lord was saying. I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias or Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout the land, but unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon. unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias, that is, Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. They got it. They in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled 
with wrath. They knew what he was saying. But the people of Israel that day didn't take in the word of the Lord. Didn't heed the word of the prophet. But others who were outside of Israel did. Many lepers in Israel. But none of them were cleansed. And you know what they did? They didn't say to themselves, well, if the Lord could minister to a widow like that in such a miraculous way, if the Lord could heal a man of leprosy like that, that's exactly what we need here. We need the healing of the brokenhearted and the deliverance of the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and liberty to them that are bruised. Yes, Lord, please, that's what we need. No. They rose up. They thrust Him out of the city. They led Him to the brow of the hill where their city was built that they might cast Him down headlong in their rage. Because He'd mentioned to them of the grace of God and the mercy of God going out to those that were outside of their borders. And he passing through the midst of them went his way. They hadn't learned the lesson Israel hadn't at that point. But let's return back now to the story, the historical account. Our Lord, again, authenticating the veracity and the truthfulness of that historical account as he referred to them there, and we have it recorded in Luke's Gospel. We begin to think about Naaman. It's interesting. I noticed this morning when I was reading that it says in verse 1 that Naaman, the captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master. He was honorable. And then this phrase struck me. I really had never thought about it before. Because by him, Naaman, the Syrian, the Lord had given deliverance not to Israel, but to Syria. Think of that. That the Lord had been responsible for the victory that Syria got and that Naaman got that resulted in Israelites being taken captive. That's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Perhaps that's why they didn't like that story about Naaman. And so we have Naaman captain of the host of the king of Syria, decorated warrior, great man with his master, honorable man who'd realized tremendous victory in battle with one huge asterisk beside his name. He was a leper. Now, for us living today, most of us have probably, most of us probably haven't seen people who have the disease known as leprosy. I remember seeing a couple of leper colonies when I was in a particular country in South America. So let's think of it in modern day parlance, if you will. Here was a great man, admired by many, all kind of achievements, in who's who, had a great reputation among folks, very accomplished, but he had AIDS. That's a huge asterisk, isn't it? 
you wonder to yourself, what would all those accomplishments matter? What would all my achievements matter if I knew all the time that I had in my body this dreaded disease that one day would kill me? The Syrians had gone out and they'd taken a little maid, a young girl, who waited on Naaman's wife. <laughs> and you've got to love it, don't you? This little girl. And oh, her boldness, if you will, to say unto her mistress, would God my Lord were with the prophet that's in Samaria, he would recover him of his leprosy. No matter what you might say about the rest of the nation at that time and their departure from God, here was a little girl that God would use to speak to the mighty man, Naaman. And it wouldn't be the only time, and hasn't been the only time, when the Lord has used a young child to speak to someone and point them to a source of healing and a source of forgiveness and a source of salvation even in the Lord Jesus you see, Naaman was a great man, and the problem with a great man like that, proud of all his achievements, nothing wrong with achievements. The prophet Jeremiah, in one of the most, I think, I don't know whether I'd say profound, but at least succinct, as he summarizes and categorizes, in a sense, all of humanity, says this in chapter 9, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And when you begin to think about it, those three categories, you can place everything that folks put their trust and confidence in or admire in folks and put it under either one of the three of those categories or a combination of those three categories. The wealthy, the mighty, whether they're physically strong or powerful people in the world, the intellectual people. Let not them take their confidence in those things. Because that's where people place their confidence. And that's what other folks admire often. But you see... When you place your confidence in any of those things, it's hard for a person like that to realize their need of the Lord. God has to humble you. I'm often reminded of the story from over the pond, brother, and forgive me if I don't get it exactly right, of the woman of title. And as the preacher began to press upon her the claims of the gospel and of the Lord Jesus. It began to get through to her. At which point she stopped the preacher to say, wait a minute, are you telling me that I have to come to Christ just like my butler? She got it, didn't she? But what would she do with it? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we all stand equally there as sinners before a holy and a righteous God. And so Naaman had to go through this process of humbling and watch how the Lord deals with Naaman 
the Syrian. First, we realize that he had this leprosy. Second, there was the little maid, the little girl, who came with a message. And somebody came in and said, look, this is what the little maid said. And by the way, she's from the land of Israel. Wait a minute. A message from the foe that I've defeated? I'm going to have to listen to that? And me, the mighty man Naaman, I'm going to have to listen to what a little Israeli girl says? Well, you know, maybe you ought to hear what she says. That there's a prophet. And if you would go to that prophet, you can be healed of your leprosy. Oh. And so, Naaman writes his letter to the king of Israel. Interestingly enough, not to the prophet. Says to the king of Israel, take all this stuff, talents of silver, thousands of pieces of gold, ten chains of raiment. And when Elisha hears about it in verse 8, he sends to the king and says, why have you torn your clothes? You think he's just trying to pick a fight with you. Send him to me. And he'll learn that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with all of his horses and with his chariot and with his entourage because he is, you know, the mighty man, Naaman. And you could just see it if it happened today. There'd be CNN. <laughs> There'd be Fox News. <laughs> MSNBC, they wouldn't really be interested. He's a military man, but you know. Anyway, I mean, they, you'd have the news and the press there, you see. <laughs> And they'd all be waiting for this great thing because this is the mighty man Naaman, you see. <laughs> and the next step in the humbling, he came and stood at the door because he was a man that was used to being received as an honorable man. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, a servant unto him. Go tell Naaman, Go wash in the Jordan seven times. <laughs> what? When he heard that, he was filled with rage. I thought he'd come out and stand, call the name of his Lord, you know, strike his hand over the place. There'd be this great dramatic thing that would happen and recover the leper. Besides that, who wants to wash in that muddy little Jordan River? We got puddles back where I come from that are better than that. <laughs> he turned and he went away in a rage. I tell you, you got to be careful around powerful men, don't you? Especially when they get in a rage. You got to admire his servants, don't you, at this point? Who would even think to speak to him? But who came and said, you know, you can just imagine in great deference, sir, if, if I could but just have a wee little word with you. <laughs> if the prophet had bid you to do some great thing, you, would you have done it? How much better than he's only said just wash and be clean? Apparently, the logic appealed to the man. His rage subsided. But once again, he had to listen to a messenger. Interestingly, there were three messengers he had to listen to, weren't there? The little girl, the messenger of Elisha, and one of his own servants. 
Listen to the messenger. Listen to the message. And he went down. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. And just like the man of God said, he came up and his flesh was like the flesh of a newborn baby. <laughs> Clean from his leprosy. You see how important it was for Naaman. What was the strategy of the man of God, of Elisha? I was thinking about this again. First of all, that Naaman had to know that ultimately it was not Elisha that was going to heal him. It wasn't going to be Elisha that recovered him from his leprosy. The Lord would have to do that. And that this man would be shut up in that sense, closed off to the message, which was the Word of God from the prophet who was the mouthpiece of God, who he himself was simply a messenger. Wasn't even going to be a touch from Elisha. Like the Lord Jesus, as we were reminded, who could touch the dead and touch the leper and not himself be defiled. He had to listen to the word of the Lord. And I want to tell you that if you're here this morning and you're not saved, that is, if you never personally have come to the place in your life where you realize what the word of God says about you, about your condition, that you have sinned, it doesn't mean you're as bad as everybody else or worse than somebody else. It means that the standard is God Himself. And when you measure yourself up against Him who is the standard, we have all missed the mark. We've all come short of God's standard of perfection. And because you are a sinner in the sight of a holy God, the Bible says the wrath of God already abides upon you. And folks are funny about salvation. I don't mean funny in a comical sense, but strange about it sometimes. I almost get the sense that when you talk to some people about the Gospel and about Jesus Christ and what it means to believe on Him, they almost convey to you a Naaman-like idea. In other words, if you could tell them some complicated thing, some series of things they had to do, but when it begins to dawn on them that what you're saying is there's nothing you can do but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe the Word of God. You mean it's that simple? I have to be careful here. S salvation is a very profound thing. In some sense, it's very complex when we think about it. But God has not made it difficult. I'm always amazed when I read the book of Romans. One of my favorite chapters there is chapter 10 where the Spirit of God through Paul begins to analyze why it was that Israel wasn't saved. And he gets to that portion. I'm thinking in my mind, if I wanted to show somebody that salvation wasn't a difficult thing, where would I go in the Word of God to do that? You know where Paul goes? 
He goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. Is that the book that came to your mind if you wanted to show somebody the simplicity of what it means to believe? Book of Deuteronomy? But Paul does. It's not as though you had to climb up into the heavens to bring Christ down. It's not as though you need to go down into the depths to bring Him up. The work's already been done. Matter of fact, the Word is so close to you, He says, so nigh to you. It's even in your heart if you just embrace it with your heart and confess it with your mouth. You'll be saved. I tell you, I sat in that prison, that jail, jail cell in 1978. In March of 1978, and the Lord was working on me. I knew I needed to be saved. No question in my mind. I was six foot of sin on a stick, you know. I mean, there wasn't any question that I was not one of God's children. And, and I thought, well, I don't know what to do. And at that time, there were all these little religious pieces of paper coming in. You know, I know them now as tracks. And I'd get hold of one and it'd say, if you want to be saved, do these six things. And I'd try to do those six things, whatever they were. And I'd get another one and say, if you want to be saved, do these four things. And, you know, believe, confess, repent, acknowledge, whatever it was, I tried to do it. I sat there with that little New Testament that had been brought to me, thinking to myself, if I wanted to take this Bible and turn to it and show somebody how they could be saved, where would I turn? And that dear woman who had written me a letter, first time I'd ever gone to prison. I saw that letter in my mind at that time, all those years before. And she didn't even write the verse out, just wrote the reference, Romans 10.13. And I turned to Romans 10.13 and read, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. <laughs> and I called on the name of the Lord. You know what? He saved me. <laughs> you call on the name of the Lord. The work's already been done. Naaman had to learn it, didn't he? There was nothing he could do but believe the Word of the Lord that came to him. And oh, the alternative. The servants put it before him. If it asked you some big thing, some difficult thing, some hard thing, you'd have done it. They're only asking you just to do what he said. Believe what he said. Weigh the alternatives. And Naaman found if he believed the word of the Lord, there was healing and salvation. How about you today? Maybe you've been involved in some form of religion, all its complicated rituals and everything else. I tell you, you're not going to find salvation there. The work has already been done. The Lord Jesus, listen, if you could do any part of it yourself, you minimize and mitigate the work that He did on the cross. He died in those dark hours alone. And the world was darkened when the Lord Jesus there bore in His body our sins, His own body on the tree. That we could be made the righteousness of God in Him if we'll come to Him by faith. Trust Him for salvation. And be saved. What a wonderful thing. So many of these stories in the Bible, you know, we want to say, and now they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> but it doesn't exactly end there, does it? 
This story doesn't end there. Because Naaman comes and says, I'd like you to give me two mules' burden of earth. Give me two big old bags of dirt that I can put on my mule. What for? Well, I'm not going to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice unto other gods, but to Jehovah, to the Lord. There is this one little problem, though. See, my master who leans on my hand, I'm his right-hand man. And when I go into the house of Rimmon, that false god, who I recognize now as a false god, to worship him, well, I bow down myself with my master. I'm not really worshiping Rimmon. I wonder what you would have told him then. What advice would you have given the man? Because Elisha says, the fiery prophet of God, go in peace. Interesting. But he did ask for those two mules burdens of earth. Because he said, I want to worship Jehovah, the Lord. I won't offer burnt offerings myself or sacrifice under other gods. And when I offer my sacrifice in the land of Seir where I am, it's going to be on the same ground that you do, Elisha. On the same ground from this land of the covenant, if you will. I'll be standing on the same ground as you when I offer my sacrifice to Jehovah. And though I might have to go into that house of Rimmon, that's not where my burnt offerings and sacrifices are. Interesting. But it doesn't end there. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master is spared Naaman the Syrian. And isn't it interesting what Gehazi's perception was? It wasn't that Gehazi, the servant, said, Oh, my master has uh, spared Naaman the Syrian, and he's been delivered from his leprosy. No, no, no. He let him off too light. He didn't receive any things at his, at his hands. None of the stuff he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. So Gehazi followed after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him. He said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, even now there come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver, two changes of garment. And Naaman said, Be content. Take two talents. He urged him. Oh, no, please, I couldn't. You know, how could I? No, 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 please. Well, thank you kindly. And takes his two bags of silver and two changes of garments, laid them upon two of his servants, and they bore them before him. When he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and bestowed them in the house. He let the men go. Undoubtedly, he let them go, but he kept the stuff. And they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? Nowhere. <laughs> Rather pathetic. He reminds us of who are parents of children. What have you been doing? Nothing. <laughs> I know you've been doing something. No, sir. <laughs> Which, you know, usually means they have been. Where'd you go? I didn't go anywhere. Went not my heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? 
Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and oliveyards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. What a false impression could have been given to Naaman. Yes, Naaman, you've been recovered of your leprosy. Yes, you've brought these great and wonderful gifts. And now God, because you've given something. No, that's not the gospel, is it? You know, the New Testament reserves its severest denunciations and condemnation. Not upon those who might be involved in certain immoral practices, as bad as those things might be. But upon those who preach false doctrine and a false gospel. Paul will remind us in Galatians in chapter 1, though we, even an angel, preach unto you any other gospel than that which you've received, let him be accursed. Twice he'll repeat that. And what a false picture that Gehazi, that servant, gave to Naaman that day. And how he corrupted the purity of the message that had been given by the man of God. And the very curse of the leprosy that Naaman had bore now rested upon Gehazi. What a warning it was. Well, may the Lord bless to us as we think about this, what it was when blessing began to be realized within that nation, and how it began to overspill the borders of the nation and spread out just as God has intended for it to do, and just as intended for us to, to realize even in our experience. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the gospel. We're so thankful you haven't made it. We're only the great intellects of the world could be saved because Lord that leave I know it leave me short I'd never make it Lord we're so thankful you haven't made the gospel where only the wealthiest of the world could buy it Lord how many would be left out Lord we're so thankful you haven't made the gospel where only the powerful the influential of the world could attain it no, no, Father, level ground at the foot of the cross. We all stand before you in that sense if we're outside of Christ as condemned. And yet, really the only thing that qualifies us for salvation is that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And if we'll acknowledge that, that's what we are, then we qualify for salvation. Because we're the ones that the Lord Jesus died for and rose again and lives today and has the power to heal and change lives and forgive sins and give life everlasting. We thank you for a great message like this. Help us to preach it and realize that it, you'd have it to expand beyond our own limited territory even to the reaches and expanses of the world. We give you thanks again for a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.